0: I'm Ray Bella, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you love the show, you can become a contributor at patreon.com wordsforgranted. For just a buck a month, you'll gain access to bonus episodes, and for a bit more, I'll even send you your own Words for Granted mug. If instead you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can do that at www.paypal.me wordsforgranted. Thanks to Max for his recent contribution. Now, usually those mugs are a Patreon-only deal, but in honor of the holiday season, I'm going to be giving away not one, but two of them. All you've got to do is share Words for Granted on social media, and tag the show before December 15th, and I'll randomly choose two winners. If everyone who listens to the podcast brought just one new listener on board, then simple math. Our community here would double, and wouldn't that be amazing? Okay, a few more bits of house cleaning. Uh, first, in the last episode, I said that St. Petersburg was named after Peter the Great. It was, in fact, named by Peter the Great, but named in honor of St. Peter, hence the name. Uh, also, in the last episode, we learned that in the English names of the North American Great Lakes, the generic word lake comes before the proper name of the lakes due to the historical influence of French in that area. This is contrary to the way we usually form the names of bodies of water in English, where the proper name comes first, like the Atlantic Ocean or the Mediterranean Sea. However, a listener on Twitter pointed out that this French-sounding construction is actually common in Australia and New Zealand, and bodies of water that fall into this category include... Lake Alexandrina, Lake Illawarra, and Lake Taupo, if I'm saying that right. However, there's no historical influence of French in that area, and when I tried looking it up, I couldn't find why these lakes have a French syntax. Uh, So what's going on here etymologically, I don't know. Um, If anyone does know, please send me an email at wordsforgranted at gmail.com, and I'll share it on the next show. And with that... Let's get on to today's episode, part two in our series on proper place names. This time, we'll be diving into the etymology of whales. In my opinion, the etymology of whales, particularly its cognates across languages over time, is one of the most fascinating topics that we've discussed on this podcast thus far. But there's a slight problem. Before we dive into the linguistic side of today's story, In order to understand the implications of the story at all, first we need to cover the basic history of ancient Britain up front. It might be a little dry, but I'm going to do my best to zip through it without missing anything important. So, by the basic history of Britain, I don't mean the unified political entity of Great Britain in the modern sense. What I mean is the British Isles before the Anglo-Saxon migration in the 6th century C.E., Ancient Britain, or Britannia as it's known in the Roman sources, had a long history before the English-speaking Anglo-Saxons settled there and founded England. The earliest inhabitants of Britain that appear in the written record were the Celts. The Celts were an Indo-European ethno-linguistic group that reached their greatest geographical distribution during the 3rd century BCE. Nowadays, Celtic culture has survived only in Scotland, Wales, Ireland, and Cornwall, but it was once the dominant culture across all of mainland Europe, if you can believe it. The geographical region of Central and Southern Britannia was inhabited by a subgroup of Celts known as the Britons, who at one point spoke a shared language called Common Britonic. Their name is ultimately behind the etymology of Britain, and Brittany, the coastal region of France on the French side of the English Channel. If you're wondering where the root of this word Britain comes from, amazingly, it comes from the Greeks, but that's another story, and I'm not getting into it here. That'll be in the next Patreon bonus episodes for contributors. In the mid-first century CE, the Romans conquered and occupied large portions of Celtic Britannia, and then in the early 5th century CE, the Romans left. The Roman occupation of Britannia is a major part of British history, but not a major part of our story. All I'll say is that over the course of this occupation, dialects of the native British Celtic language continued to thrive. This is contrary to what happened in most territories in the Western Roman Empire, where Latin replaced the native language. About a century after the Romans left Britannia, the Anglo-Saxons arrived. The Anglo-Saxon settlement of Britain is a complicated topic because scholars aren't sure about the precise nature of the migration. How many Anglo-Saxons migrated? Was the migration a full-scale conquest? Was it the migration of an elite warrior class? To what degree were the native Britannic Celts subjugated by their foreign invaders? And so on and so forth. I'm not qualified to settle any of these questions, and thankfully I don't have to, because here's all we need to know. The Anglo-Saxons were a composite group of several West Germanic tribes from the European continent. They spoke a Germanic language that over time would become Old English, and after they migrated to and settled on the British Isle, they somehow established themselves as the dominant ethno-linguistic and cultural power in what would eventually become the Land of the Angles, or Angleland, or England. The Celts living in the Anglo-Saxon settlement were absorbed into Anglo-Saxon life, and their native British Celtic language gradually vanished. However, this did not happen to the Celts living in modern Wales. At this point, there began to emerge a sense of Welsh identity among people living in Wales for the first time, and now we can actually get on to the meat and potatoes of our story. To call this emerging identity Welsh is a bit of a misnomer because these people didn't call their country Wales and they didn't call themselves Welsh. Wales and Welsh were names given to them by the foreign Anglo-Saxons. So what did the Welsh call themselves their land and their language? They called themselves Cymru, they called their land Cymru, and they called their language Cymric or Cymreg. All of these names still exist in the modern Welsh language, which is one of the few remaining Celtic languages in the world. And for any of my listeners out there who do speak modern Welsh, please excuse my pronunciation if it's not perfect. Cumru derives from the common Britonic word Combrogi, which meant something like fellow countrymen. Originally, this word may have referred to the inhabitants of not only modern Wales, but also to those of modern Cornwall, England, and southern Scotland. The inclusion of all of these regions and their peoples under a single ethno-linguistic identity would be a reflection of their common ancestry before the Anglo-Saxons arrived. So, like I already said, Cumrum, or modern Wales, was never settled by the Anglo-Saxons. Consequently, the Cumri people spoke a different language and maintained a distinct culture, that is, the original language and culture of the native Celtic Britons. However, from the Anglo-Saxon point of view, the Cumri, their language and their land were foreign, and that's exactly the name by which the Anglo-Saxons called them. You see, the words Wales and Welsh derive from the Old English word Waelish, which meant foreigner. Part of the reason why I gave you so much exposition of British history is not only for historical context, but also to drive home just how ironic this name is. The Anglo-Saxons were literally the foreigners settling in a new land far from their home, yet here they are calling the native Welsh foreigners. The old English word Waelish derives from the reconstructed Proto-Germanic word Walhas. Proto-Germanic is the unrecorded, prehistoric mother tongue from which all subsequent Germanic languages derive. As one might expect, the word Walhaz has etymological descendants in Germanic languages across the board. This word Walhaz was based on the name of a particular Celtic tribe that had a handful of powerful federations spread out across the entire stretch of mainland Europe. Remember, even though Celtic culture has only survived in Scotland, Wales, Cornwall, and Ireland today, the Celts were once the predominant ethnic group all throughout Europe. This particular Celtic tribe that the Germans called Walhas is better known to history by the Latinate name Wolkai. Julius Caesar famously wrote about them in his account of the Gallic Wars. This same tribe also appears in Greek sources by the name Wolkai. Because today's main narrative takes place from a Germanic point of view, I'm going to refer to this tribe by the more obscure name Walhaz, since that's probably what the Germanic tribes called them. I say probably because this word doesn't appear in any written records, but instead has been reconstructed by historical linguists. At some point during the Proto-Germanic period, roughly from 500 BCE to 100 CE, The Celtic Walhaz people lived on the periphery of Germanic territories. However, over time, this word once associated with a specific tribe of non-Germanic people came to be used to identify all non-Germanic people. In other words, the name of this particular foreign tribe became a generic word for any foreigners living outside the boundaries of Germanic territory. By the first century CE, The regions south of Germanic territories were inhabited not only by Celts, but also by Romans, and for that matter, Romanized Celts. From the Germanic point of view, all of these people would have been designated by some form of the word Walhaz. The indiscriminate application of the name of the Walhaz tribe to any non-Germanic people has resulted in a wide range of derived words that have completely different meanings across the Germanic languages over time. Let's take a look at a few. In Old Norse, Valsker meant French, and in Norse mythology, Valland referred to the lands of Europe inhabited by non-Germanic people. Archeologists have actually found coins on Swedish islands with a Proto-Norse runic inscription that reads, Walhall which literally means Roman grain. This phrase is supposedly a reference to the coin itself as a form of currency. All of these words are derived from Walhaz and are cognate with Welsh. In German, the original word for speakers of Romance languages was Welsh. It's no longer in use, but it actually survives in the Swiss dialect of German as a word referring to French speakers living in Switzerland. In the Walser dialect of German, Welshu means Italian. In German, Danish, Dutch, and Norwegian, "Kauderwelsh." or some variation of that word, means gibberish, literally non-Germanic speech. In Yiddish, the word Welsh refers to Sephardic Jews who are the Jews historically native to Spain. In Belgium, Wallonia is the southern region of the country where French is the predominant language. There are many, many, many more examples of this, particularly in place names, both historical and contemporary, but I think you get the idea. In the Germanic languages, words cognate with Welsh are generally associated with people, language, cultures, or places descended from the Romans, even though the term originally was the name of a Celtic tribe. This root word not only appears in place names and ethnic names, but also in some common nouns. For example, the "wall" in walnut literally means foreign nut, perhaps more specifically the Gallic nut. The walnut is native to the non-Germanic regions of Italy and France whereas the most common nut in the Germanic regions was the hazelnut. In modern German, the word Welsh kraut literally means Italian cabbage, or Savoy cabbage, which is a type of cabbage not native to the Germanic regions. So as we've just seen, when the Germanic Anglo-Saxons migrated to Britain, the term Welsh, which they applied to the native Britonic Celts living there, already had a long history of usage. It would have been the obvious term of identity for them to use for these non-Germanic people. I should note that the wall in the English region of Cornwall also derives from this same root. Unlike Wales, Cornwall is a part of England proper, but the region has always had a strong Celtic identity. At this point, we've thoroughly explored the distribution of the Proto Germanic root Walhaz among various Germanic languages, but the legacy of this root Walhaz doesn't end there. Around the 7th century CE, somewhere in the southeastern Balkan region of Europe, the root word Walhaz was borrowed from the Eastern Germanic language Gothic into the Proto Slavic language. Proto-Slavic isn't a language we've ever discussed on this podcast before, but as you might expect, it's the ancient common mother tongue to all Slavic languages, such as Russian, Polish, and Bulgarian, among many others. When the Proto-Slavs borrowed this word, the Germanic sense of Walhaz had largely come to denote Romance-speaking peoples. Consequently, Walhaz has a vast number of cognates in the Slavic languages associated with speakers of Romance languages. To zoom out with some perspective and put this in plain English, a group of non-Germanic speakers borrowed a Germanic word for Romance speakers that once referred to Celtic speakers. That's why I love this podcast. In the Proto-Slavic language, the pronunciation of Walhaz shifted to something like vlok, and in Slavic-speaking Eastern European countries, and even non-Slavic countries such as Greece and Turkey, terms derived from vlok, came to denote Roman-speaking peoples living in the Balkans, primarily in Romania. The precise usage of these Vlok-derived terms has varied over time, and nowadays these Slavic languages call Romania by some cognate of the word Romania itself, but when referring to Romanian as an ethnicity, my understanding is that these older Vlok-derived terms are still in use. Interestingly, in modern Polish and Hungarian, the latter of which is not a Slavic language, by the way, the Vlok derived terms "voque" and Ola Sorsag mean Italy. The logic behind that isn't too difficult to see, since Italy is the birthplace of the Latinate or Romance languages. When I began research for this episode on the word Wales, I was not expecting to be talking about its Slavic cognates, let alone its Slavic cognates that have to do with Italy, but... These things do happen when you go down the rabbit hole. Now, let's get back to Wales proper. There's another historical name for Wales that we haven't discussed yet, and that's its Latin name. And as we're about to see, this Latin name has indeed come down to us in English, but in a roundabout way. The Latin name for Wales emerged in Church Latin during the Middle Ages. This might seem odd, since the Latin-speaking Romans first came into contact with the British Isle in the 50s BCE, nearly a millennium prior, but you have to remember that it wasn't until the Romans left Britannia and the Anglo-Saxons arrived that a distinct Welsh identity began to emerge. That's when the people of Wales began calling themselves cumri. The language of western christendom needed a word to differentiate between the britannic kingdom of wales and england so it took cymru the word by which the welsh themselves called the land and latinized it into cambria this name lives on in a handful of local welsh toponyms or place names such as the cambrian mountains and the cambrian way perhaps more famously It is also the name of a Paleozoic geological period lasting from approximately 541 million years ago to 485 million years ago. Now, you might be wondering, what in the world does a medieval Latin name for Wales have to do with prehistoric geology? Well, during the 19th century, British geologist Adam Sedgwick was studying some rocks in Wales, And based on his research, he proposed that they dated back to the time period that is today known as the Cambrian. So he named the geological period he'd discovered, quote-unquote, after the place where he made the discovery. The reason why he chose the Latin name for Wales instead of its conventional English name is because Latin was the lingua franca of science. In spite of all the juicy details and tangents of today's story, let's not forget the main point. The story of the word Wales is simply this. A foreign group of people, the Anglo-Saxons, migrated to a new land belonging to native people, Britonic Celts, and this foreign group of Anglo-Saxons designated the native people as Welsh, which essentially meant foreigner or other. As we know, the Anglo-Saxons would go on to become the more powerful of the two groups on the island, and we can see this power dynamic in the disparaging usage of the word Welsh in various English expressions over time, For example, lice was known as Welsh crickets, and fixing your hair with your fingers was known as a Welsh comb. Welsh as a common noun, meaning avoiding the payment of money owed on a losing bet, is probably a jab at Welsh nationality as well. This usage is sometimes pronounced as Welch. Now, I hope it's obvious, but I'm not saying that in the year 2018, all English people are running around disparaging their Welsh neighbors on a regular basis. All I'm pointing out here is that these are some derogatory expressions that have been used by the English toward the Welsh at various points in time. Unfortunately, groups of people, whether ethnic, religious, or whatever, always have mean words based on the names of other groups of people that they perceive to be unlike them. All right, that's it for this one. I hope you loved it. Again, if you want to support the show, patreon.com wordsforgranted is your ticket. If that's not in your budget, but you still want to help out, why not leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast directory of choice? They really help out the show. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter, both of which are at wordsforgranted. And if you have questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to email me at wordsforgranted at gmail.com. Okay. Have a great day. I will talk to you soon.